so recently, very recently, and all of you probably were aware of this, maybe you observed and watched and followed the news or um, tuned in, but, but uh, Monday, September 19th, was the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, and it concluded 10 days of national mourning. Uh, she was 96 years old. She had a reign of 70 years, which is staggering, the history uh, and details and the facts that surround what she did in her, in her uh, reign and the span of her life as a queen. Uh, she met with 13 out of 14 of the last presidents. That's just staggering. Um, regarding her funeral, I mean, the facts are pretty staggering as well. Millions tuned in to watch this. Thousands came into uh, London and the various streets to observe and participate. Four days leading up to the funeral, there was a line of people that w- waited to walk by her coffin at Westminster Hall that was, was, got up to about five miles long that could take up to 30 hours of wait time in order to make your way to see her coffin. 2,000 dignitaries and guests were at Westminster Abbey. Um, all kinds of different varieties of authorities and, and dignitaries throughout the world. Almost 6,000 military personnel were deployed to carry out the entire funeral. Around 1,600 military personnel were involved in this, the procession itself with the queen's, queen's coffin. And there were up to like 10,000 police officers every day just on alert, working and managing the city. The airport actually diverted planes um, to fly differently or land at different times in order to avoid that particular time. Uh, the, the queen's coffin, as it lays in state, the, the imperial state crown that adorned that, over 2,868 diamonds on this crown, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 269 pearls, and four rubies. A lot involved in the honor of this, this queen of her life and obviously in her death. And as I watched portions of the ceremony and I observed these facts, I mean, they, they're amazing. I mean, the, the attention that was drawn from the entire globe upon this, the amount that they gave an attention to honor, to respect, to bring dignity to her, to the military, to protect the procession, to honor her life and her death. And and you could consider this as just a spectacle of sorts, like, why? Well, this seems a little outrageous. And yet, I think the response of people to it is it draws attention to something mapped upon the human heart, the, the, the waiting in line, the, the fixing our attention on this woman, considering all that she has done is there's something within our hearts that, that knows it's right to honor someone like a king or a queen, someone of great, great power, a leader who has led well, with dignity, with respect, faithfully. There's something right and beautiful and even sacred in honoring them. Yes, in their life, but also in their death. It is right to honor one who rules rightly and who is a king, or in this case, a queen. And we, as we turn to Mark this morning, uh, we've seen as we've navigated this, this, this uh, gospel that Jesus' identity has unfolded He's come preaching the kingdom of God. His authority has been displayed in all that he's done. He is, he's being seen and recognized as the true king, 
full of authority, deserving of, of worship, and also one who is to be followed. And it is right, and it is good, and it is beautiful, and yet his rule is coming, as we have observed, is, is landing on people as they wouldn't have expected. This is not the king they expected. This is not the Messiah that they expected. This is not the earthly throne that would overthrow with military power Rome. It was him actually moving towards, towards his cross, his a suffering. His royal procession as king was, was not going to be with pomp and beauty, but, but of blood and of suffering. His arrival and death was, was not going to come with parade, but actually a military that was going to be deployed to, to mock and to torture. Governing authorities to gather not to honor and pay respect, but through a, a faux pageantry, scoff and condemn and eventually crucify. And so this morning's text is just going to continue to push us into that reality. And, and we're going to see Jesus as, as the true king. But it's laced with, with an irony. It's laced with an irony that the one that they are rejecting as king is, is really the true king. You actually will pick up on it as four times, actually six times in this chapter, four times in our text that we see Jesus being spoken of as the king. But he's ascending his throne in his honor through a very different path, and that is through his death and his death for others. And so let us read this morning and hear from God's word. Chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? And Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner of whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was not out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. And the chief priest stirred up the crowd to, him, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed them in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Join me as we pray.
Savior, the, the reality of what you have done and what you did, what we're reading about. Lord, we come, we come to this, this story, this history, this reality with, with humility this morning. And, and I, I pray for my own heart and for all of our hearts that so we, would, we would not let our heart just glaze over these words. Um, that, that some of us, the stories, this story that we've heard a thousand times would, we wouldn't leave indifferent to it. But we would, we would be reminded of, of what you have achieved to bring us to yourself so that we, we could be counted as your own, uh, that we could, be, we could have your name upon us. And so come, Holy Spirit, would you guide us into that reality? Would you guide us into worship and trust and joy and to know your love this morning? Amen. Amen. We have three scene, scenes in our text. We're going to let that kind of follow some, some headings here. One is Jesus before Pilate, this king that's going to be acknowledged before the crowd, a king exchanged, and before the soldiers, a king who's mocked. And so here we are, and this is, the again, the final hours of Jesus before his death. Earlier, it's been a long time since we were there in the text, but this has happened very rapidly. This is all the same week. It was Thursday night. Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples. And late that night, they went to the garden. Jesus was praying, and there he was arrested and then brought before the religious authorities. Jesus went, this early morning, went through this sham trial, this sham conviction. And then there was the denial of Peter, of Jesus by Peter. Jesus has been condemned to death for confessing that he is, is the Son of God. And now it's still very early in the morning. It's Friday, and it is still that morning before his crucifixion, which would, would happen at the third hour. That would be at 9 a.m. And this, this tr- idea of trial that we looked at last week the last week's text in chapter 14, there's, there's the same theme of trial going through and threading through this text. You might have noticed that. Jesus shifts, however, from what was previously just a Jewish audience, a Jewish authorities, and his, his condemnation where he would either be um, innocent or guilty, that they determine his faith. And now we're primarily before a Roman audience, a a Gentile authorities, and they're ruling on either his innocence or guilt in determining his fate. Now, the Sanhedrin, this religious body, they, they didn't have the right to execute someone, so they had to bring them under before the Roman authorities to, to let that happen. And that's where Pilate comes in. Jesus is handed over to Pilate, we see. Now, who is Pilate? He was prefer, uh, referred to as the, the uh, prefect or the governor. He was the commander of all the Roman occupation there in Israel. He was a very powerful dude, very important guy, and he was there in Jerusalem because it was Passover feast and he had to be present, be sure everything under his watch would go smooth. There would be no no chaos, no disorder, no room for rebellion, no one to dare to defy the Roman authorities. 
So the Jewish leaders, to enact the ruling, need their verdict from him, and then therefore to bring an execution. So for the Jewish authorities, Jesus' guilt of blasphemy was for confessing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, that he was equal to God. And now it's as if he is now brought before the Roman rule, and in their interpretation, as they're hearing this Messiah, this king, ruler language, the king of Israel, for Rome, there can be no king but Caesar. There, there, he is the divine authority, and there, if any threat to, to Caesar or the true king must be extinguished or punished. So, Jewish leaders couldn't put up with the false Messiah usurping their authority and their teaching, and the Romans couldn't put up with anybody claiming to be a king and usurping their power and authority. So, think Messiah, Jew, and king for Roman Gentile. And here, Pilate asks the question, are you king of the Jews or king of Israel? Very likely in a mocking tone, as if this nobody guy would be anything of a king. And the question mirrors what the chief priest asks. Tell me, are you Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? And, and Jesus answers, you have said so. Just an interesting reply. It, it, Jesus' answer is an affirmation that it's true, but it, it's in an odd, indirect way. It could be interpreted as saying, whatever you say. Or, yes, but. I am that, but I am, I am so much more. And then the accusations come flooding in again, probably the distorted charges of him threatening to destroy the temple or maybe bringing in threats about Caesar and taxation that we saw earlier when he was, had that question came to him in the, in the temple. But Jesus is silent now. He does not answer him any further or any accusers any further. And Pilate watches in amazement. He listens in amazement. Jesus, as we know, his silence is not an indicator of, his, of guilt. It is an indicator of his submission and trust to the Father. This, this is what he must do. This is his plan. Not my will, but yours be done. And so in all the power that the Jewish authorities were wielding and the power that Pilate had, it, this is astounding to me, that the power of our Savior Jesus was showing that he has the true authority and he's able to move ahead and achieve his purpose and plan of salvation as he's in there in chains, as he's not even having to say a word. Yet he's propelling his power and his plan and his purposes ahead. Jesus predicted this. This is what he's doing. Mark has shown us three predictions that Jesus gave to his disciples. One of them was back in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, saying, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will be condemned him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is fulfilling his prophetic word. Handed over to the priests and scribes, check. He'd be condemned by them, check. Delivered over to the Gentiles, the Romans, check. The irony back in chapter 14, remember the, the, the religious leaders were spitting on him and hitting him and telling him and demanding him to prophesy? The thing that they're demanding of him to do, he's fulfilling as they're punching and spitting, him, spitting on him. Fulfilling Scripture right before them. This is the power of 
our Savior, entrusting himself to the Father's will, walking this out as he's purposed and he's planned. And he's able to be silent in that. There are time for words of defense of our faith as people. There's a time to tweet and to post and to respond, but there's, there's also a time to be silent, and it's a communication of us entrusting ourselves to Him. A charactered life with confidence and trusting into our sovereign God's hands. And this is our Savior. Jesus' silence before the accusers was a resolve of His trust in the fulfillment of God's plan and fulfillment of prophecy long ago. Isaiah 53, 7, and he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't have to. This was the will of the Father. This is God's hands at work moving forward his redemptive plan. Commentator James Edwards writes, by the plan of God the Father, Jesus, who would be intentionally delivered into the hands of Jewish leaders and Gentiles. The paradox is profound. The murderous intent of Jesus' opponents succeeds because God the Father hands him over to achieve the atonement plan through his death. The success of all of this is because God wants the success of all of this. Jesus has no further answer because his plan is succeeding. And so he's there before Pilate, and then the scene shifts, and he's moved before the crowd. And our second scene doesn't start with Jesus as the focus, interestingly enough, but an unlikely unlikely character, a man called Barabbas. Now, every one of the four Gospels includes this story of this, this criminal and this exchange with the crowd and he and Jesus. Something should draw our attention to that as, as important for us to grab. So Barabbas was in prison for a murder, for some being involved with some re- rebellious insurrection against Rome. We don't know all the details about that, but, but we learn that there's a special pardon that takes place during the feast of the Passover. Um, and unleavened bread uh, would be, could be called a Passover pardon. And Could it be that that Pilate in this moment, and as he's being amazed at Jesus' response and what seems like an indicator of innocence, could have thought, Jesus seems innocent enough, could could he be the one that gets pardoned today? Wouldn't the crowd, maybe made up of all of his followers and his disciples, would they want him to be freed or released, and he could kind of wash his hands of this situation? But... I imagine he was very taken aback at what takes place next. Pilate tries to make the case for Jesus' release and two times, do you want me to release for you this king? Do you want me, what do you want me to do with this man that you call the king? But they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want him to be freed. Instead, they want this insurrectionist rebel murder to be freed and released instead. And two times they cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus is the innocent one. This was a theme we observed and looked at last week in Mark, and we see it again in chapter 15. 
The trial before the chief priests was a sham. They stirred up false witnesses to try to communicate and distort things about Jesus. The, the whole performing of the trial, the way they did it was riddled, riddled with law-breaking. And we see the same again. Jesus' innocence stands up in the midst of the evil and the pride coming against him. Pilate knew out of envy that the Jewish leaders were stirring up this incitement against Jesus. The religious leaders actually stirred up the crowd. They were instigating. I mean, they're slipping people, you know, $50, $100. Like, hey, would you guys just freak out about Jesus? We want him to be crucified. Pilate asks the crowd specifically, what evil has he done? He observes their lack of credibility. And Pilate, Pilate placates to the crowd in the end to satisfy them because, because he, he knows there's, there's not justice in this. Jesus' innocence is standing up here, I think, Mark, in stark contrast to that of all of the crowd and the evil leaders and as well as this, this character, Barabbas. The insurrectionist. What, what is an insurrection? It's a violent uprising against authority or, government, or a government. This is what Barabbas was guilty of, an uprising. He was a rebel and guilty of murder. And it, just imagine that scene. Maybe you've seen certain paintings or pictures, right? You've got Pilate standing there and Barabbas on one side and, and Jesus on the other side. Which one? Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus, the, the innocent king that we know of, or this rebel criminal that stands before you? Who, who is going to suffer and who is going to be pardoned and set free? Tell me. It's interesting to note that Barabbas' name is Hebrew. The Hebrew means son of the father. You could, you could actually hear and see Abba in there, the term for father. So, this man called, that man they called son of the father, and Pilate asked, what do, what do you do, what do you want me to do with the man called son of the father, and what do you want me to do with, with the man called king, king of the Jews? In Mark, we have heard two times the father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my son. So Pilate is asking, Barabbas, the rebel, called Son of the Father, or, or Jesus, he doesn't know, but we know the real, the real true Son of God. So not Pilate, not, not the crowd, not the scribes and the priests are going to make this determination ultimately. What is Jesus doing with his innocence and with his power? He is using his authority and his power and his innocence, and he is choosing to suffer for sinners those who are not innocent in their stead. The man called Barabbas, the son of the father, rebel, murder, insurrection, is, is released. And the man called the king of the Jews, true son of the father, innocent, perfect, and holy, is going to be treated as if a murderer rebel. This is Jesus' mission. This is Jesus' mission. This is what he told us he came to do back in Mark 10, 45. Really, the theme verse that captures Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as an exchange, to, to redeem, to pay a price so that he could release many. The ones who are guilty, 
he instead. The one who is the true son of the Father comes innocent because of his love and his grace, and he comes to pardon and release those who deserve to be condemned. This is God's plan. This is God's doing, and it is because of his love and his mercy and his grace. There was a 19th century pastor in England, contemporary of Spurgeon named Octavius Winslow, and he said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Jesus coming, fulfilling the plan of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit because he loves his people. And he wants them to be set free from their condemnation so they could be in his love. This is all his doing on our behalf. Sinners who could be released from condemnation to be called sons and daughters. For you, for me. This is God's plan. We, we can sometimes read it in, in its varying ways that different gospels position Pilate. And I, I've looked at it and said, man, is, is Pilate like a Jesus sympathizer? Is he, is he kind of soft on Jesus? And we don't know fully, but his tone when he's communicating is, is, is very mocking. And in the end, he is self-preserving in his agenda, wishing to satisfy the crowd. He, in the end, was participating in that plan. And he releases Barnabas, uh, Barabbas and sends Jesus off to be scourged and crucified. Scourged and crucified. An execution that would then come to Jesus that was only for the worst of worst criminals. So scourging take place before crucifixion. This was like stage one of crucifixion. They were, somebody was tied to a post, and then you were beaten with a whip with several lashes tied to that, and tied to the end of those would be bone and metal. So they would be beaten this way so that in turn you would probably die quicker. The goal was for you to die quicker as you were on that cross. It was horrific. They, they wouldn't even do this to women because it was so gruesome. Sometimes people would die even by the scourging. Mark doesn't go into gory details here. There's, there's purpose in that. He, he doesn't want us to get lost in those things. He, he wants us to stay focused on Jesus' plan of where he was going and what it was achieving. And this was that he would be handed into the hands of the Gentiles, verse 34, chapter 10, and they would mock him and spit on him, and flog him. Jesus obeying and sitting under his suffering so that he could save his people. So, before Pilate, before the crowd, and now before these soldiers, and the king is now mocked. Our third scene is, is disturbing to read. Jesus was mocked, and he was spit on. He was beaten by the Jewish authorities, and now he's doing this before the Romans. It's as if Mark is showing us that the full rejection of Jesus has come by Jew and Gentile-like. Jesus is completely abandoned by all peoples. The entire world is, is moved and turned on and rejected Jesus. 
There's none guiltless. None guiltless. And he was flogged. And Jesus is the one who embraced that, fulfilling Isaiah 56. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus hid not his face. He hid not his back. He hid not his feet and his arms. The irony here is so, so dense. They're in a palace, a place for royalty, for kings and those who rule. The whole battalion comes around Jesus. A battalion would be up to 600 men. 600 men are needed to deal with this faux king. Robe of purple draped over him, very extremely valuable piece of cloth worn only by a king or some emperor. A fake crown of thorns shoved upon his head. A headpiece only worn by a crown that would be an emperor, sign of divinity. They salute him and they hail him as king. And they even kneel before him in worship. In all the, the mockery, what they proclaim is true. David Garland writes, It is hardly surprising that the company of soldiers heaps scorn on Jesus as the king of the Jews draping a purple robe around him, placing a crown of thorns on his head and offering him mock homage. A king who has no army, whose followers have deserted him, who beaten and bloody looks totally powerless is an easy target for jeers. And these tormentors ironically testify to the truth. He is the king of the Jews and so much more. The very one that they're bowing down to in mockery is the one that Philippians tells us every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that he is king of kings and lord of lords we all we all will respond either now mockingly and one day truly will be bowing our knee or we can bow now and we see him and behold him as king as savior as messiah mark traces this question through, questions through the gospel. Jesus' identity, who is he? And then what does it mean to respond to him and his identity? Will you follow him? Will you trust in him? So who do you say Jesus is? And if, will you identify yourself with him as his follower? And what that means, the implication of what it means to follow him. And there's all kinds of responses to that. Jesus' parable about the seed and the sower, we, we've looked at that, how Mark shows us all the variety of responses to the kingdom of God, and will you receive the word of Jesus in the preaching of his kingdom? Some seeds, seeds scattered, and some embrace and receive his word, and some fall and reject, are rejected. Some seed falls, and there's, there's no root to endure, and then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, people fall away. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd by releasing Barabbas and sent Jesus to be crucified, is a picture for us and a picture for those original readers in Mark. When, when, when things don't go as expected, 
what will we do? How will we be swayed by the voice of the crowd and what it means to be connected to Jesus? Remember Mark's audience, those Roman Christians under Nero, oppressive Roman rule, sufferings. What will I do? How will I react when my threats, the threats to me, come? The crowd or Christ? It can come for us too, right? The crowd or Christ. Who will we be connected to when the sufferings come pressing in for us? There will be, some of us, certain and acute persecutions, but others of us, will we minimize our faith in that moment or will we stand and say, yes, Jesus is the one I follow. Jesus is the one I will be connected to. And to know that as those Mark readers were seeing, God was at work with the Savior as He was suffering and he, there was not a moment that He would not be apart from God's help and His plan. How helpful is that for us in the persecutions or the sufferings that would come our way? We, we can know God is with us. God is near us. The crowd may be against us, but we can suffer for his name's sake because Jesus is with us and we are with him. We can endure and respond in Christ's way. How is this possible? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2 shows us and, and points to an area of our hearts that have been transformed and empowered to respond as we should when this happens. Chapter 2, verse 19 tells us this, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were, like, were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our rejection for Jesus' sake is a gracious thing. Sometimes that's a hard thing to embrace and believe. We are called to this as his disciples. To not revile when we are reviled. To not mistreat others when we are mistreated. To not respond in kind with words as we have been communicated to sinfully. We can, we can die to the the urge to sinfully react and respond or be hopeless in that because there is a healing that has taken place in our heart, in our soul. What is the healing that Peter speaks of? The wounds that have been healed in our heart is the brokenness that would just leave us to vengeance and hate in our response as opposed to a healing that we can respond in love and forgiveness and endurance and in turn with faith entrusting ourselves to him as Jesus did. We can entrust ourselves to him. He will in turn judge justly. He will in turn. 
And aren't you grateful that he judges justly and that we have been judged based on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ? To be judged justly without that would leave us hopeless and helpless and condemned. For what does God do for those who defied authority? That we should be able to see ourselves in that crowd saying, crucify him. We should be able to see ourselves and identify ourselves with Barabbas, the one who's rebelled against his authority, the insurrectionist rebels who have spat on his glory. What did he do for the straying sheep? Jesus, at the cost of his sacrifice, laid down, exchanged himself so that we could find his love and acceptance. The first step for us ever seeing and embracing the good and the glory of the gospel is that saying that we need the cross. We were in the crowd. We were among the rabble that would, would call Jesus to be crucified. John Stott summarizes this way, before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. And what does Jesus do? Jesus uses all his power. All his power, all his, all his innocence, all his grace, all his royal glory as king to become a servant, to be a substitute for us in exchange for our guilt so that we in turn could be forgiven, clothed in his righteousness, brought into his palace, his royal glory and his kingdom as his people, sons and daughters, to know that we can share in all his beauty and his glory as, as king. And in that grace and power, we can endure and we can suffer unju- unjustly as we entrust ourselves to him. So maybe a question for you this morning. It could be easy for any of us to find ourselves as if we were that rebel insurrectionist based on all that we have done in our life and our sin and if we do encounter the grace of God we can we can drift to still thinking ourselves as someone who's just we're just on parole like like that is still our identity and somehow we're we're just getting off a little bit as opposed to our our identity has completely and fully changed when we are in Christ we are no longer just on parole. We, we have a new identity in Jesus. Our status now is son and daughter of God. We are near and in King Jesus. And there is royalty now that is bestowed upon us as heirs. The true king, Jesus the true king with complete authority comes as a suffering servant to die for his people so that we can then be clothed in his righteousness, in his kingdom, as his royal people. Jesus, the innocent one, not an insurrectionist rebel, he comes as a substitute for those so that he could take upon himself all of our sin and all of our rebellion, and we could could have a new status in him. This is the great exchange that comes through the gospel. This is the exchange that Jesus is showing us here and that he fully does upon his cross and a song that we, we sing often, Man of Sorrows, this captures us so well. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, 
he stood. This is what Christ has done. Let us pray, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this exchange, Jesus, that you, you committed yourself to the plan of Father, Son, and the Spirit from eternity past that came and broke into history and that was enacted in this, this moment in history where you could, you could have said, my will, but you said, the Father's will. And with all of heaven and all of the, the power of the Father and Son and Spirit moving that forward, not Pilate, not the crowd, not scribes or chief priests, but your plan, Lord, you, you move that forward and you, you, you embrace the exchange, the substitution, so that you could become a ransom for us. We're straying sheep so that we could return to the, the shepherd, the overseer, the keeper of our souls, our king who brings us into his his palace brings us into his royalty by your serving and your suffering. Jesus, I ask that you would allow that to just wash over our hearts. If there'd be any that are here and they you feel like they're they're just still stuck in a is a proly guilt just weighing heavy, condemnation heavy, Lord, would you allow there to the beauty of this exchange, Jesus, to, to free them? trust, of faith, of worship, to know your love, Lord. Would you allow the reality of this to continue to move us as the next coming weeks we, we look more deeply at the cross and your resurrection and, and Lord, we it wouldn't be indifference, but it would be worship. God, it would be trust, it would be glad joy, Lord, a renewal of what you have done in and through your gospel for us as your people. Amen.